This is Solve It for Kids. Hello, my amazing and curious friends. My name is Jennifer, the Dean of all things STEM and STEAM, and this is Solve It for Kids. The podcast that gives kids and families a peek inside the real world of scientists, engineers, and experts as they solve problems in their jobs using creativity, cooperation, and critical thinking. And now please welcome to the show my podcast partner, Galactic Space Geek, Jeff Ganya. Hello, Jennifer, and hello, listeners. Galactic Space Geek Jeff is excited once again as we have another unique view of space and spacecraft to talk about today. Oh, this is going to be so much fun. What problem are we solving today? How do you make a spacecraft safe? How do you make a spacecraft safe? I'm guessing this is a pretty good problem to have to solve here, right? Before we send people up, who is our guest today, Jeff? A very important problem to solve. And luckily Mm -hmm. today, we have the wonderful Vera Demchenko. She is going to tell us all about it because she is a systems test and verification engineer for Lockheed Martin's Orion program. Welcome to the show, Vera. Thank you so much. And hello, listeners. Very happy to be here. Well, so you get to work on Orion. Yay. (laughs) I do. It's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so I. No argument here. Yeah, I think we can both agree to that. Yes, exactly. But so, did you always want to work on space, like a spacecraft or a rocket or something since you were a kid? Absolutely not. Many interests growing up. I, wow. I will say this. So a fun little fact about me. I was not born in America originally. I was born in Ukraine. Okay. And I grew up in a very small town where light pollution was more to a minimal level. So I remember as a little girl, I would always gaze upon the night sky and oh. I love looking at all the stars. Okay. I remember the moment when Mars was with one of the closest approaches with Earth, and it (gasps) just looked so big and beautiful. But I never could see myself working in space growing up because no one has told me what are the options. I thought there was only astronomer. Right. That was the only career you could have. And I didn't want to be a starving scientist. (laughs) To have a truth a little bit, perhaps. (laughs) Yeah, just a little bit. But as I grew up, I was introduced to more ideas of what a career in space could look like. And it wasn't really until my end of high school. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about my senior year. When I found out that you can mix different disciplines with astronomy and combine it, so you have things like astrobiology, trying to look for life beyond Earth, astrochemistry, understanding the chemistry beyond Earth. Yes. And those were just really cool concepts to me. So I wanted to dig more into that in college. So my background is in astrophysics and planetary science. That's what I studied. Wow. And that's not what I'm doing now. No, that doesn't (laughs) sound like your job title. (laughs) No, 
<laughs> so what it's definitely a... been non-linear as a path, but happy to talk about that in more detail. Yeah. I love that. What a great explanation of from the starving scientist of, yeah. I don't think anybody's going to pay me to look through a telescope <laughs> and see how pretty Saturn is to the your very last year of high school before you had to go to college and figure out what you wanted to do figuring out that you could add that to other things, like you said, the astrobiology, astrochemistry, and realize that there were a lot more options out there. That was a great way to explain that. So can you now kind of jump forward into college studying astrophysics to where that's not what I introduced you as a few moments ago? (laughs) Absolutely. So When I started out college, I had this grand idea about pursuing a PhD in astrochemistry. Okay. And as I mentioned, what this would kind of entail is I wanted to focus more on the search for life. I've always believed that it's possible, given the right chemical composition on a planet or a moon, that you can absolutely start some kind of life there, given enough time and probability. Mm -hmm. perhaps not intelligent life, but certainly microbial. Right. And so when I went into college, and for the record, I studied at CU Boulder, which has a great astrophysics program. Yes. uh, That's when I wanted to go into that direction until about halfway through when I realized my gosh, I'm not sure if this is the right thing for me, if academia is the right thing. I've always really enjoyed talking with people. And Mm -hmm. and to that end, I'm going to rope in one of my interesting experiences in college. I worked at my local planetarium. Okay. That's awesome. Started out just selling tickets. And then I worked my way up and started doing outreach programs I started oh, uh, awesome. writing my own shows, lectures, presenting them to wow. public. Yeah. Wonderful. And, and let me just squeeze mm-hmm. it. Was that the Fisk Planetarium? Yes. Yes, that was Fisk. I, I have been there with my daughter. Oh, nice. fantastic. I am right down the road from Boulder in Colorado Springs. Okay. And yeah, there's only nice. so many planetariums in Colorado. So we've been to them all. Great. <laughs> very uh, cool. Continue. Yeah. So I realized at that point that, you know, I have these interests in talking to people to explain complex subjects and make it very, you know, digestible for everyone. And that has implications, not just in education, but also in policy, engineering, um, in business, you name it. So I felt a little bit lost at that point in my direction with life. But I knew that the academia route was not the way I wanted to go. So Mm -hmm. to answer your question in the beginning, how did I end up with where I am today? That was not actually the case for me to go into engineering until about two years ago or so. So this was already after I graduated college with my degree. Okay. So imagine this. Vera graduates she has this degree that she's not planning on using. She feels <laughs> lost. <laughs> and then one of her friends ends up telling her about systems engineering and how oh. that could look like for the space industry. I thought that was a really interesting field to go into because of my background. You know, I've already used to working with different people from different right. 
disciplines, different backgrounds. I'm used to thinking high level. I'm used to explaining my ideas and concepts in a way that everyone can understand. Yes. That's actually one of the most important things in systems engineering. And so I get to work with a lot of different people, not just my teammates, but a lot of different groups at my program. Mm -hmm. And I get to use not just those hard skills, but the soft skills too. So learning how to talk to people, you know, making sure that we're all on the same page about what we're doing. That's actually one of the hardest parts of my job. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. So can you give us some examples of what you do with the Orion spacecraft? Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, I wanted to point out that at Lockheed in the Colorado location that we have, Mm -hmm. there's a laboratory where we have an electrical copy of the real spacecraft that is located in Kennedy Space Center in Florida. And as a result of having this copy, we can do a lot of really cool and complex things with it. So when we do some testing, you know, before we fly anything out into space and making sure it's safe for people, that it meets all the requirements that NASA tells us to accomplish, that, you know, the spacecraft can receive the commands appropriately, that it can respond with the right data, sending it back to the ground. Okay. And so that's something that we can replicate in our laboratory here in Colorado. And that's really cool. That's, that is cool. Yeah. We have a very sophisticated simulation model, which basically makes the spacecraft think, oh, I'm out in space already. Oh. I'm not on the ground anymore. And so you can do a lot of really cool, complex things with testing there. Okay. Testing's come a long way. I'm just going to say that, right? Absolutely. Wow. So I have one question about your electrical model of the spacecraft. Mm -hmm. Is that something that's just on the computer as a model? Or is it an actual physical model that would look like the spacecraft as well, just with all the electrical systems? I would say it's more of the latter. So you have something that actually looks like Orion spacecraft in our lab. Okay. It has a lot of hardware that is installed on there. So thinking like computer systems, that's there. And maybe that's never going to fly, but it is going to be very, very similar to the real thing. And so we have things like antennas installed on there. So we can communicate. We have the avionics, which is like the brains of a spacecraft that's installed there. We have... What my favorite part of the copy is that we have like actual seats that rise up and down. So you can <laughs> see some of the crew check out with the uh, so And pretend you're actually flying, maybe, on Orion. Yeah. Okay, that, that would be cool. Uh, That's that pretty be. cool. Does it come with spacesuits, too, so you can put the whole uniform on and pretend like you're an astronaut? <laughs> we don't have spacesuits, oh, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> um, however, we do have to wear a special type of jacket whenever we enter that oh. part of the lab facility. So that way, you know, when you have electric discharge, uh, so like static electricity, right? things that can basically raise the hairs on your body, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Right. When you touch something that is expensive and, <laughs> and <laughs> very um. light hardware, you want to make sure you don't damage it with things like even a small as static electricity. So these jackets are special oh in the sense that they 
protect the hardware. Okay. That, that is cool. really, yeah, that is really intriguing. I never thought about it. How just like a little static electricity that you, you know, when you rub your socks along the ground, you give to somebody else could actually damage some probably very expensive hardware. I'm guessing. <laughs> Absolutely. So with systems testing and verification, how many systems with the Orion spacecraft are we talking about? Is this five, dozens, hundreds? So let me see if I can answer that question. With Orion, let's say there's one big system, but okay. the system okay. is divided into multiple subsystems. Right. Okay. And there's a dozen of those or so. So we have things like avionics, which is what I mentioned earlier, that's right. the brains of the spacecraft. We have communications and tracking subsystem, which is primarily focused on the antenna portions of okay. uh, what's installed on a spacecraft, right. how it communicates with the ground. We have things like guidance and navigation system. Right. right. And that's a bit of a black box to me. But <laughs> to explain it in simple terms, this is how the spacecraft determines where to go and how to fly there and right. at what speed. Okay. And when you have to pump the brakes, so to speak. Right. So okay. That you don't miss your target. That's okay. So that's an easier way to understand. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming with these scenarios, you not only make sure everything works, but do you sometimes give it like problems to see how it reacts to something that it might encounter? Like if it, I don't know, kind of shifts off where it's supposed to go, or if it all of a sudden starts turning or, you know, something like that. Do you do any kind of scenarios like that to see what happened to the systems? Absolutely. So because my focus is primarily on avionics of the spacecraft, mm -hmm. that's what I focus on testing. Oh, okay. There are lots of things that can go wrong. Mm. Some <laughs> test cases, I will say, you know, the Orion program has to make a decision on, can we actually make it realistically a test case in our lab? Can a, a certain things right. only be tested in space? And you never True. want to test anything in space. By that point, no. <laughs> everything should be ironed out, all yes. the problems. <laughs> it's a bad day if we see problems. Yes. Um, but to give you guys an example, one of the failure cases that we could see happen on Orion is that its internal batteries could go dead. And, and you know, if you have no batteries that's that are bad. powering things on Orion, that's a bad day. That's luckily, a very bad day. <laughs> <laughs> luckily, Orion is equipped with solar arrays. So oh. it's kind of like a bunch of solar charging batteries on the spacecraft, okay. mm -hmm. but it's still a process and it takes time, you know, to get enough sunlight. So you have enough energy and you have to store it in these batteries. You have to make sure that all of that energy goes to the rest of the vehicle and is right. distributed well. So that's one of the most extreme test cases you could try to replicate. And that is actually something I will be working on this year. Okay. That's, that's probably good to know how Orion would react in that particular case. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so Orion, based on when we are taping this right now, Orion did just fly out around the moon. And Jen and I were huge fans and watched and yes. followed along. Can you give us any information about how that flight went 
based on your specific job of what you tested out. Did Orion work exactly as it was supposed to? Is it ready to go for Artemis 2? Or are there things that need to get tweaked before Artemis 2 kind of a thing? That's a great question, Jeff. So to start with, the Artemis 1 flight, for the most part, went very, very well. Yay! Wonderful. Yay. Very well prepared. We did a lot of extensive testing. We even found problems really late before we actually launched the spacecraft. Oh, wow. And so I would say that in terms of preparedness, we were ready. Excellent. And when we saw the landing of Orion, that I've heard a lot of people quote as that was almost like a textbook landing. Wow. How well, how smoothly it went. Yes. And I remember watching that and seeing, oh my gosh, everything is going and working. <laughs> exactly what it's supposed to. Yay! Uh, you know, there was one interesting thing that we observed during flight. We briefly lost some communications with the Orion, and that's because... Sometimes you have to remember the simple fact, whatever your antennas are configured for, more or less that signal has to be matched on the ground with our ground antenna. And if there's a mismatch, you can lose communications with any sort of spacecraft. Right, right. And so I do recall seeing one small hiccup in that regard, but it was not a deal breaker for the flight. Now, to answer the second part of your question, Jeff, Artemis 2 is going to be a bit different from Artemis 1 in the fact that right. we are going to have real crew, we're yes. going to have real human beings flying Orion on mm-hmm. the second mission to the moon. And because of that, we have to do a lot more rigorous testing to make right. sure that when we launch Artemis 2, it is going to be not just functionally working, but it's going to be safe for the human beings who will fly it. Right. So your job is to make sure that the capsule, the the Orion, actually operates the way it's designed to operate. In the specs kind of goes on the path that it's supposed to go, the trajectory and keeps everything clear. Yes. Yes, in simulated test cases. <laughs> in simulated, okay. But also, hopefully, in real life. Can you give us an idea of how long it takes you to get all of these things set up? Because this is what I've heard from people who may not follow this space program as closely as some of the rest of us do. My gosh, it's going to take another two years for you know Artemis 2 to go off or whatever. What is taking so long? Can you talk a little bit about how the fact that this stuff just doesn't happen overnight? <laughs> <laughs> so two years. I know that sounds like a really long time for people, but it's actually a very short amount of time to get everything tested, everything right. verified making sure that it's safe for humans, making sure the spacecraft operates as intended. And so I'm personally a little bit skeptical that we can meet that sort of timeline because it is a lot of work. You know, first you have to start with uh, component level testing, which is one step beyond subsystems. So you have, let's take, for example, our communications and tracking subsystem, which is the antenna portion. Okay. You have to actually individually test the antennas first. Okay. And that is a number of tests in itself. I mean, we're talking about weeks for something like that. Wow. Then you have to make sure that 
the whole subsystem works well together. And that's a series of tests. That right. could mean, you know, here's a simple functional checkout. Wow. Okay, here now we're going to run this with the sim, making sure that everything's working. And then we have to make sure that the system works. And then, so this is just, <laughs> this is just my Lockheed part of the team. On right. Then we have to make sure that our counterpart, which is NASA, you know, receives Orion that, you know, we do a lot of testing on and right. then they do additional testing. Right. And then they have to make sure they put everything together, you know, on the rocket, making sure everything's stacked nicely, making sure there are no leaks, making yep. sure there are no loose bolts or not. Wow. Everything has to be perfect. And right. that takes time. Yes. A lot of time. A lot and of time. It's, I really like the way you yeah. and then and then explained it because yes. I'm picturing all of our, you know, the way Jen said it of, okay, Artemis 1 went up and it was a success. Let's start launching Artemis 2 is, is what a lot of general, okay, why can't we just send them? And it's a lot different when you're sending actual astronauts Five humans that you want to bring Five back. humans. <laughs> Everything needs to work. I'm picturing, is your work done on a, like, I'm a spreadsheet geek. Like, are your tests done on spreadsheets or sort of certain systems that you have with Lockheed that are, you can't go to block B until block A has been done. Like you can't go on to the next test sort of in a linear fashion like that. So that is a great question. We have a different team, not in Colorado, but the one in Florida that does testing okay. on the real spacecraft. Mm. Okay. And so they are responsible for making sure each piece works. Then they stack it, you know, make sure that it's meshed together with everything else that already works. They kind of build the spacecraft as it goes. Right. So obviously can't test the very end stage, which is the system, until your whole Orion spacecraft is built, right? If you right. only have half of it, sure. you can't move on. So that's what they do. For us, we pretty much have the most of the system that we can replicate in our lab. That's all set, ready to go. We don't have a lot of prerequisites, as I would like right. to call in other words, we don't have uh, scenarios oftentimes where some certain tests need to be done before we can do what we want to do. Ah, uh, okay. So what happens when you encounter a failure? Because I can't imagine that you test all these things and you're like, oh, everything worked perfectly. Let's just move right along. You know, that's not real engineering sometimes. So what happens when you encounter a failure? I would say that that's just part of the job. Yes. When you're a test engineer, <laughs> you're expecting things to go wrong and you're expecting to, you know, troubleshoot it to find solutions for making sure that we understand how exactly something broke. You right. Know, fix the root cause okay. and then continue on. And yeah, most of the time it's never a smooth experience. It's never perfect, <laughs> which is why I'm going to add an additional little time slot into the schedule of two years because you you can't predict what things will right. go wrong in testing. Right. And something that might have worked well the last time or what you know the first three times the next time may not, right? 
Yeah, we have a word for this when something automatically works. <laughs> and we're not sure why. <laughs> that has happened a few times. <laughs> okay. That's, I like that word. I'm picturing you and your team's engineering faces when that happens. So I have sort of a, a comparison question. We're talking all about the Orion spacecraft, and that's what you're working on. How much more technologically advanced is the Orion spacecraft compared to the Apollo capsule? Oh, that's a great question. You're putting me on a spot here, Chad. <laughs> sorry, but I, I don't really know if I'm quantifying that in a good way. But how much, like, when you look at two pictures, I'm sure a lot of listeners have seen a picture of inside an Apollo capsule where you see all sorts of manual knobs and switches. And Orion just has touchscreens that has replaced nearly all of that. How much more technologically advanced is the Orion versus the Apollo? So I confess, I have not seen a lot of images of the Apollo crew cabin. And so I will say, yes, we have displays inside, but we still do have a lot of knobs and we have manual Mm -hmm. controls that will allow crew member to steer the spacecraft in a different direction if something were to go wrong. Ah, okay. Uh, Now, if I recall, Apollo 11, as they were preparing to land, they had like 11 seconds or 30 seconds of fuel left. And that that was a doozy for them. They had to put it down. Yes. Find a place. I was just at Kennedy and we went to that like little kind of thing that they had the display where they show the little movie. And yeah, that was pretty incredible how that happened. Wild. (laughs) It's like now or never put this thing down. (laughs) Yeah, we I would say have probably a more sophisticated subsystem called ECLIS, which is short for, I'm going to butcher this, but it's basically (laughs) the environmental life support system for the human crew members on board. Okay. Okay. It does things like provide you oxygen and it's not just oxygen. We actually mix it with nitrogen. Right. Okay. uh, Very good. That's reflective of how, you know, we breathe here on earth. Right. We also use that subsystem to, you know, make sure that the crew has water and oftentimes they recycle an astronaut's pee. To yes. get that right. water. Yes. Uh, because the resources, you know, are very limited when you launch anyone off into space. You know, yes. sure. kind of have and water's with... heavy, right? It, you can't carry yeah. a lot of water with you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, it's heavy to launch. It's kind of like a very complex aquaponic system for humans. <laughs> um, oh my I gosh, say, I love that. I like that. <laughs> I'd say we definitely have evolved that complex process since the Apollo days. We're much better at doing it now, especially with our lessons learned by sending humans to the International Space Station. Yeah. Well, I just think it's cool that there's a bathroom on Orion, which makes sense because from what I understand, they're going to have to live there for uh, several days on this, on Artemis 2, and then Artemis 3, perhaps longer until, you know, they have gateway ready. So, you know, being one who doesn't like to camp with no facilities, I would be very happy to ride on Orion. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it's funny you say that because human physiology, you know, what our mental states are going to be like as we leave Earth, the only place we've ever known. 
Yes. And we go to a place we've never been. Well, if you were, you know, the specific crew member, obviously we've been to the moon before, but you're going off into the world of unknown. You mm-hmm. want to be as comfortable as possible. If you have to think about things like, oh my gosh, I can only drink so much water. Otherwise <laughs> I will run out. And I, and you know, humans get very easily, de- you know, dehydrated. And so, yes. You have to be mindful of all these little things you take for granted when you're living on earth. And that can be a very lonely, very stressful experience. So we want to make sure that as we build these spacecrafts, that they're going to be comfortable for humans as much as possible. So they don't have to think about these things as much. Yes. Yeah, that's incredible. Yes. So talking a little bit, sort of leading where you were just talking about on these longer missions and that. Will Orion, Orion is definitely taking humans back to the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, like that's exactly what you the, the whole team is working on right now. Will Orion be the spacecraft that brings humans out to Mars? Oh, that's a good question because um, <laughs> I believe that is actually the long goal. Yes, Orion is meant to be a deep space exploration vehicle for humans. Mm. And Mm, we define deep space as pretty much everything beyond low Earth orbit, you know, past the International Space Station. So that Mm -hmm. includes the moon. That very much includes Mars. And in fact, the whole concept of the Artemis program is that by going to the moon, by returning and Mm -hmm. creating a somewhat permanent presence there, we learn a lot of lessons that can enable us to finally go to Mars. That mm-hmm. is the long-term right, vision. Right. And so yeah. when someone says things like, are you team Mars? Are you team moon? <laughs> I always say I'm both because you need, right. you need well, both in order to get the technology you need to finally go to Mars. I mean, exactly. And that that's how I like to describe it to people too. They're not competing. They're One is actually helping the other. Exactly. And, and while systems and people might be working on them simultaneously, there might be people who are so focused on going to Mars. The information that we learn from going to the moon is is going to help us get to Mars, I think. So basically what your job is, is to make sure Orion works well and provides the safe environment for the astronauts inside. That's pretty much everything that you do. That seems like a very big job. Well, luckily (laughs) I focus on one piece of it. Okay, that's good. Lots of other teams that focus on the other pieces. And we all have to work together to make sure that Orion is going to be, you know, safe and ready to go. That's amazing. To me, I say this a lot on the show, Jeff. I think you agree that Humans are just incredible. Like the fact that we can come up with all of this and engineer it and it works, right? Yes. I think it's amazing. I think I have one last question and I kind of want to bring it back personally to where we started on, we started the podcast talking to you, Ms. Vera, that you weren't sure a couple of times (laughs) on where you were going to go. How do you feel now that you've ended up in systems engineering, working on the Orion spacecraft. Can you elaborate on that question, Jeff? (laughs) When you decided to choose astrophysics to study in college, and then you realized along the way that wasn't the path for you, do you feel like systems engineering on a spacecraft is an excellent path for you? 
Good question. <laughs> Being a person that continues to have multiple interests, I would say that it is a great path for me, but I don't imagine myself doing just this one thing. Ah, great so, answer. That is. No, that's good because sometimes you look at it and what you're doing is amazing, but then you'll see something maybe more challenging. Maybe you look for more challenging things or, or more intriguing things. I think that's a great lesson. Agreed. I, if you would have told me that I would have ended up being a STEM science writer for kids when I was little, I would have been like, you're kidding me. So it was a career path that I made when I was in my 40s and, and I switched over. Even if you would have told me when I was in my 20s, I would have said, no. So you never know where you're going to end up. But I am very curious to see where you do. Farah, we'll see. Yeah, maybe um, we should check in in uh, another 10 years. So I, that, I was just thinking. That, doing, Jennifer. that would be wonderful. I was just thinking we'll have that, Ms. Farah back on again. And that we'll that have a would whole be new fantastic, career. yeah. But I love the fact that you're working on the Orion spacecraft yes. right now. It sounds very exciting. And mm. congratulations, by the yes. way, on how well yeah. the flight of Artemis won. Yeah, went. and to all of Lockheed Martin and, and NASA, that it's been just a wonderful experience to watch all this. But now we are at the time in the show where we ask for our guests to give us a challenge. Do you have a challenge for our listeners, Vera? I absolutely do. So my question to you, listeners, is how would you design a spacecraft to make sure that it's safe for human beings when Ooh. we travel beyond places like the International Space Station? I love okay. that. That would be great to do with a classroom activity for kids, just to see kind of what the things that they come up with. I love that challenge. That was excellent. It's got to have a PS5. It's got to have a cookie maker. It's got to have a yes. pizza. Pizza. Hello. We have to make pizza. Yes. And it um, could have those things, but they'll have to figure out how to integrate all that so it works, yeah. right? That too, yeah. And maybe certain choices that you thought was a good idea in the beginning actually turn out to be harmful to some of the equipment mm. that you have on board. So you have that's, to be a little bit careful there. That's very ah. true. That's Yeah, this is a great challenge. Well, I hope listeners, all of you guys go out and do this. This sounds really fun. This could be great dinner table conversation, right? <laughs> Families talking about this. This sounds fun. Vera, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today on Solve It For Kids. Thank you, Miss Vera. Thank you so much, guys. What a deep dive into the spacecraft. You know, as galactic space geek Jeff, even I get caught a lot of times in, you look at the outside and the <laughs> shape of the spacecraft yep. and how many windows and hatches and, yep. you know, this one has touch screens versus more knobs and switches. But you don't really think about sort of the behind the walls, the behind the scenes of a spacecraft. Yes. How fun was it to learn more about that? Oh, it was so fun. And, you know, we learned so much about how the spacecraft works and, you know, the most important thing, which is making it safe, <laughs> right? Yes. And, I, and I love Vera's challenge about designing a spacecraft. I think it'll be intriguing to see what kids come up with, don't you? Absolutely. I think this is one of the most fascinating because in my previous world at a space museum, 
If you tell kids to design a spacecraft, the amount of curiosity, ingenuity, imagination that go into their designs on what they truly believe they can bring with them on a spacecraft, (laughs) to see that design is going to be a whole lot of fun. So I hope our listeners do it. Yes. And, you know, the one thing that I think is fun, what you just said is, so when kids design it, they don't have to think about how much it's going to cost, right? They get to put right. all the cool bells and whistles that they want. Yes. So if any of you, our listeners out there, if you design a spacecraft, we'd love to see your image. So you can tag us on social media. We are at KidSolve at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And don't forget to check out the website, SolveForKids.com, where we have a page for every episode, including this one, so you can learn more. And maybe we'll be able to have some images of the inside of the Orion spacecraft right there on the website for you. That's going to be wonderful. I hope we see these designs. I want to see that imagination. The only limits on your spacecraft are the ones you place yourself. (laughs) Until next time, you'll hear Jen and Jeff on Solve Solve It It For for kids. Kids.